0: So Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory.
1: Good morning. I want to wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend, and also a happy Trinity Sunday. Um, So we've been journeying through the Apostles Creed together for the past several weeks, and um, the Apostles Creed, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's a confession of faith uh, that goes really all the way back to the third and fourth centuries after the days that Jesus walked the earth, and it's it's a creed that confesses basic beliefs of Christianity. These are things that Christians in all places and for all time hold to and believe. And so these the the Apostles Creed communicates essential Christian beliefs. And so over the past several weeks we've been kind of unpacking um, what this what this creed says and what it teaches. And so we've covered that as Christians we believe in God the Father Almighty who is creator of heaven and earth. Um, we have, we've also confessed that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And then last week, we we looked at the statement in the creed that says we believe in the Holy Spirit. And so, if if you're good at math, this means that we believe in in three persons. We believe in Father, Son, and Spirit. But but if you know anything about uh, Christianity, if you know anything about the Christian religion, you also know that as Christians, we are monotheists. Mono means one. Theists or theos means God. And so monotheism refers to the idea of one God. Christians believe that there is only one true God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so we come to this question of which is it? Do we believe in three persons or do we believe in one God? And of course, the answer is yes, right? Scripture leads us to affirm that God is both one and three. And so this morning we come to the perplexing but oh so important doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I realize that even at the mention Of of the word Trinity, or the idea that we're going to try to unpack this doctrine this morning, some of you may have just felt a twitch. Like, this is um, a a confusing, or it has the potential to be a confusing doctrine. It's mysterious, and it inevitably requires us to use terminology um, that can seem confusing and complex. Words like nature and essence and personhood. It's like, where, even the word Trinity, you know, where where does this come from? And, and our temptation might be to just avoid thinking about the doctrine all together. It's, it's a lot easier to just think about Jesus, isn't it? Right? The Bible says that Jesus made the invisible God visible. It's like I can get Jesus because he put on flesh and became one of us. He's tangible and, and knowable. And so um, it, it's easy for us to just limit our understanding of God to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. But we can't, as Christians, avoid the doctrine of the Trinity. Michael Jensen says that in a world that presents us with a smorgasbord of gods, the Trinity specifies who it is that we worship. Professor Greg Allison agrees. He says that this doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, distinguishes the Christian faith from all other religions. No other religion, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, even Mormonism, and there are more, comes close to embracing the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I want to circle us back to a quote that I've mentioned several times in the course of this series that as we've gone through the Apostles' Creed, from A.W. Tozer, who, who says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, do you think of Him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is your understanding of God, in your mind, is it triune? See, this doctrine is not, is not ten and gentle to our faith. It's, 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 it's not peripheral. It's, it's central. The Christian God is a triune God. So, so we must think about what this means. Unfortunately, most Christians have not thought through it and could not adequately communicate what we believe regarding it. Kevin DeYoung says that when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, most Christians are poor in their understanding, poorer in their articulation, and poorest of all in seeing any way in which the doctrine matters in real life. And that's the real kicker, isn't it? Like, most of us don't see why it matters to get this doctrine right, or why it even matters that we believe in a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's That's what I want to address this morning. I I, I want to to briefly establish what it is that we believe the Bible teaches about God's nature. And and then I I want to spend time answering the question why does this doctrine matter? How does it affect our lives? So, So, first, what do we believe about the Trinity? Then, secondly, why does it matter? The Belgic Confession of Faith, it's a a confession of faith that came came much after the Apostles' Creed. Uh, It articulates belief in the Trinity this way: it says, We believe in one God who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons. I want us to say this together. So it's on the screens. Let's let's confess this together. We believe in one God who is single in essence in whom there are three persons. The the confession goes on to to unpack um, this this idea that God is is one in essence, three in persons. It says the Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The, The Son is the word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are only one God. So in the past few weeks, we've covered much of what this confession articulates. We've seen that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, who is... Uh, the, the source of all things. He is the Lord and giver of life. We saw that Paul, when he was given opportunity to, to address the, these uh, people in, in Athens, the Athenians, um, that, that he tells them that God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, that He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He himself gives to all mankind life and breath. And everything. Paul distinguishes God the Father from from pagan deities and says, God is not man made. God doesn't live in man made temples. He's not like carved images. He is the giver of life to all mankind. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. That's who God the Father is. The following week, we saw that we also believe in, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who is eternally begotten of the Father. That means Jesus is the eternal Son of God. There's always been this familial relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus is the divine Word who is in the beginning with God. The Apostle John says of Jesus, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made, and in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus said of himself, I and the Father are one. And he told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We think about the Apostle Thomas who initially doubted the resurrection of Christ. Jesus later appears to Thomas. He says, Thomas, come, I want you to touch the wounds in my hands my feet. And Thomas, when he sees Jesus, falls down before him and declares, my Lord and my God, theos, a term, a word typically reserved for God the Father, Thomas says, is true of Jesus Christ. Last week we saw that the Holy Spirit, like the Father and the Son, is fully God. Jesus promises his disciples, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. The Spirit proceeds eternally from God the Father. He is, Jesus says, the Spirit of truth. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says of the Holy Spirit, he says, the Spirit searches everything. Even the depths of God. For who can know a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God because the Spirit of God is one with God. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe that these three are one. It's fascinating when after Jesus resurrected from the grave, appeared to his disciples. This is just before he's about to ascend back to heaven. He, he meets with his disciples on a mountain and he, he gives them marching orders. He gives, he gives them commands. He says, I'm about to go. But I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And he tells them, he says, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what's fascinating here is the word for name, namas, is in the singular. There's one name that people are to be baptized into because there's one God. But that name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the African church father Athanasius put it this way. He says, we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. The God of the Bible is three in one. He is a tri-unity. He is a trinity. The Father is God, but is not the Son. The Son is God, but is not the Father. The Spirit is God, but is not the Father or the Son. Three persons, each fully God, yet there is only one, true God. This is not contradiction. This is mystery. This is divine mystery. And so let me pause and ask this morning, does your faith have room for mystery? If you would be a Christian, it must. See, the God of the Bible, He is knowable because He has revealed Himself to us, but He is not fully explainable. And we need to marvel at this. We need to behold the wondrous mystery and bow down and worship the God who is a Trinity. Now, the question remains, why does any of this matter? Right? That's the question we all want to know. Why does this doctrine matter? And so let me offer four reasons this morning why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. First of all, the doctrine of the Trinity matters for our worship. The doctrine of the Trinity matters for our worship. If we are not worshiping God as Father, Son, and Spirit, we are not worshiping the God of the Bible. We we are not worshiping God as He has revealed Himself. God has, through Scripture, revealed Himself to us progressively, granted, he, he 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 revealed himself progressively over time he didn't give it to us all at once there are hints there in the beginning right you have you have god the father creating you have his word going forth bringing things to be you have the spirit of god hovering over the waters you have god the trinity present in creation but it's kind of in, in veiled form you have god taking this divine counsel in genesis 1 let us plural make man in our image right it's it's there but it's kind of hidden but ever So much, little by little, God begins to reveal himself, not as a Unitarian, but as a Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we would worship the God of Scripture, we must worship him as Father, Son, and Spirit. So if we want our worship to be true, if we want our worship to be aimed at the true God, we must worship him as Father, Son, and Spirit. But I want to take this from a different angle as well, because I think... Meditation on the Trinity ought to fuel our worship as we we look at this God that we cannot completely comprehend or explain. Deep thinking about God, doctrinal study, is not antithetical to ch- to worship church. I think we tend to think that these days. We think, oh, well, if we get too deep, it, it it it's gonna it's gonna neuter our ability to worship because we're gonna get lost in the clouds and we're gonna be all heady, and that's just that's that's antithetical to worship, and and that is not what you find in Scripture. Actually, deep thinking about God fuels our worship. You think about. Think about David in Psalm 139. David is meditating on this reality that God is omnipresent. He says, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the depths, you're there. If I go to the heavens, you're there. This And he, he's thinking about it. He's like, God, I can't go anywhere from you. You are, you are omnipresent present, You're everywhere. And, and, and as he meditates on that, he's overcome with emotions. He says, such thoughts are too wonderful for me. It's as he thinks deeply about God that his worship is fueled. Or we think about Paul in Romans 11, as he's, he's contemplating God's mysterious sovereign plan of, of saving all nations. How God, in, in, in his mysterious wisdom, has In a sense, caused Israel to not see Jesus as Lord. Why? So that the Gentiles can be brought into faith. And yet, Paul. Paul hopes and, and knows that there is a day coming where what, what, what he calls is a hardening that's come over Israel will be lifted. The veil will be lifted and, and, and ethnic Jews will see Jesus as Lord and believe. And he's, he's meditating on the mysterious sovereignty of God in salvation. And he's overcome. And he says, oh, the depths and the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Deep thinking about God leads Paul to worship God. And the same is true with this doctrine of the Trinity. As we meditate deeply about who God is, Deep truths should provoke awe-inspired worship. So church, don't run from doctrine. Do not think that doctrine has to be cold and stoic. Don't think that theology has to be all heady. Let it fuel your worship. We need this doctrine for our worship. Secondly, we need this doctrine for our prayers. We can pray, You can pray this morning because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. You remember how Jesus taught us to pray? Jesus says, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, can you teach us how to pray? He says, yes, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. We pray to the Father. The primary focus of our prayer is to God the Father. And yet we do that through Jesus Christ the Son. So the author of Hebrews brings this out for us, that Jesus is our priest. He's our mediator who's made atonement for our sin, which has given us access to God. How do we talk to God the Father? Were it not for Jesus Christ, we couldn't talk to God the Father. We wouldn't have access to God's presence, but because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus is our priest, because he paid the penalty for our sin and we have been forgiven and cleansed, we can enter into the presence of God. We can talk to God the Father through God the Son, and the Spirit finishes this out. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. He says, even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit helps us in our weakness and gives us groans, even too deep for words. When we don't even know what to pray or how to pray, the Spirit prays on our behalf. The Spirit helps us. Jesus. Showed us, we saw this last week, that the Spirit guides us into all truth. He reminds us of the words of Christ and brings them to our remembrance and teaches us. The Spirit helps us in our prayer. And so when we pray, church, we pray to the Father through the Son with the help of the Spirit. Praying is a very Trinitarian thing. We couldn't pray to the God of the Bible if it weren't for the fact that He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Thirdly, this doctrine matters for understanding love and relationships. If you want to understand love and relationships, you need to look at God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. One of the things that distinguishes the Christian understanding of God from all other religions is that we believe and emphasize that God is Love, that essential to who God is, is the reality that God is loving. Love is not emphasized as an essential attribute or characteristic of God in most other religions. But 1 John 4, 8 says of God, God is love. It's not just something he does. It's who he is. Pastor Ray Ortland says the Bible never says God is wrath. We have to provoke him to wrath. But we don't have to provoke him to love. Love flows out of his deep, spontaneous heart. Don't you love that? But have you ever stopped to ask the question, why does love flow spontaneously out of God's heart? I think the answer is rooted in the fact that God is triune. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so for all of eternity, these three have been engaged in what some theologians call a dance of love. God is love because God is three in one. He is a God in relationship within himself. See, a Unitarian God, a God who is not triune, cannot be essentially loving. It can't be true of who he is deep within himself. Only a God in relationship can by nature be loving. Tim Keller calls this the divine dance. He notices as he reads John's gospel, listen to Keller's words. He says, the gospel writer John describes the son as living from all eternity in the bosom of the father. And this is an ancient metaphor for love and intimacy. For all of eternity, Jesus has lived in the bosom of the Father. He and the Father have been in this intimate relationship of love. Then later in John's Gospel, Jesus, the Son, describes the Spirit as living to glorify Him. In turn, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. And this has been going on for all Eternity. Keller expounds further. He says the inner life of the triune God is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutually self-giving love. When we delight in and serve someone else, we, we enter into a dynamic orbit around him or her. We, we center on the interests and desires of the others, and this creates a dance particularly if there are three persons, each of whom moves around the other two. So it is, the Bible tells us, each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles around the other two, pouring love and delight and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. That creates a dynamic pulsating, dance of joy and love. Do you understand what Keller's getting at? That God, Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity has been in what he calls a dance of, of mutually self-giving love where the Son delights in the Father and lives for the glory of the Father. And the Father delights in the Son and lives for the glory of the Son. And the Spirit delights in the Son and lives for the glory of the Son. And the Son receives that glory and turns around and gives it back to the Father. And there is this ongoing dance of love within God Himself. That's who God is. He is a God of selfless love by nature. Keller concludes that ultimate reality is a community of persons who know and love one another. That is what the universe, what God, what history, and what life is all about. So the reason why we can love is because God is love. You can't really explain love without God. And God, who made us in his image, made us for this kind of relationship. He made us in his image to be like him. So just as God lives in a relationship of love, he calls us into that. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in John 17? He's, this is the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed, where he'll be scourged and then crucified. He's with his disciples in the upper room, and he begins to pray. And he prays this. Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. The prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples just before he departs from the earth is that we would be welcomed into the dance of love. What Jesus is saying is that fundamentally the meaning of life, the meaning of your life, the meaning of, of my life, is that we would not live in such a way that we center life on ourselves. That we make life about us, but that we would enter into what Pastor Ricky Jones calls the spiral of joy. That we would center our lives on God and experience the dance of mutually self-giving love. That we would give our lives to God. That we would make life about God just as God does that. And this, in turn, is how we begin to live in love and relationship toward one another. See, this is the design of marriage, right? Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, that we would mutually submit one to another in love, right? And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially the way Christ has loved the church. This is selfless, sacrificial love. And this is rooted, Paul says, in who God is. We selflessly serve and love one another because that's what we see in God, we can't truly understand love or relationship at their deepest levels until we understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity shows us how to love. Number four, this doctrine matters for our salvation. The Trinity helps us understand and appreciate our salvation. Matthew read for us from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. For the sake of time, we won't take a deep dive into these verses this morning. But what I want us to see is that you weren't saved by a God in a generic sense, you were saved by a triune God, and we see that in these verses. We see that the Father is the architect of salvation. Paul says that that God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters. And, And we see over and over again that the main player in our salvation is God. God is the one planning this thing. God is the one accomplishing this thing. It's God. It was God the Father's plan. He is the architect of your salvation. The reason why we can be saved is because long before you and I were ever born, God had a plan to save us. Right? And then we see that the Son is the accomplisher of our salvation. God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the accomplisher. So God's plan all along is in Him. You were chosen in Him. That's Jesus. You were predestined in Him. In the fullness of time, God God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. In Christ, we are redeemed. Jesus is the accomplisher of our salvation. Verse 7 in Ephesians 1 says that we have redemption through his blood. It's in the blood of Christ that we are saved. So God the Father plans it. God the Son comes and accomplishes it. And then thirdly, the Spirit is the applier of our salvation. The Spirit is the applier of our salvation. Verses 13 and 14 says that in him you also, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit comes in and awakens the gospel to our hearts. He makes it real to us. He gives us faith to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And it says that the Spirit seals us as a guarantee. He gives us faith and he keeps us believing. So when you think of your salvation, I want you to think of how God the Father, long before you were ever born, chose you to be in his family. He had a plan to save you. And how in the fullness of time, God the Father sent forth his son to come accomplish that plan. Jesus came to rescue you and bring you into the family. God the Father adopted you through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And God the Spirit made all of this come alive in your heart so that you might believe. And he sealed you in Christ. He is with us even right now. The Spirit, if we have put our trust in Jesus, is in us. He is with us, keeping us believing. He's helping us to keep on keeping on until the day of Jesus Christ, until we either die or Jesus returns. Your salvation is a work, not just of God, but of Father and Son. And Holy Spirit. So why does this doctrine matter? It matters for our worship. It matters for our prayer. It matters for even understanding love and relationships. It matters for our salvation. Let's pray together. God our Father, we we do marvel. Lord, we readily confess that these things are deep and have the potential to be overwhelming. And in our flesh, we may not even want to go there. We may not want to strain our minds to think about it. God, we're so lazy in our thinking of you oftentimes. Lord, so often our version of Christianity is trite. It's cliche. God, I pray this morning you would help us to press past that, to really press in deeply to who you are so that we might worship you, so that we might be overwhelmed and awe-inspired at who you are. God, we cannot, we cannot fully explain. There is, there is mystery here, but there's beauty here. There's wonder here. So, God, help us to, to build an altar and to worship here at your throne. God, you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we worship you as such. We thank you that you're triune because it means that we can talk to you and know you, that means that we can be saved, it means that we can experience love and live in relationship. God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.